turn with me to 1 John chapter 4, where we pick up through the New Testament, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. We are now in the middle of 1 John at chapter 4, or heading toward the close of the book, actually. We'll pick up in verse 1 eventually. You can put your finger there. That's where we're headed. Now, Heavenly Father, we always like to pause and just settle our hearts and minds before you by your Holy Spirit. We acknowledge, Father, as your word declares, these truths are only understood spiritually, and we need the help of the Holy Spirit to translate these truths to our hearts and lives. And so, Father, we open up. We say yes to you, um, and we want to hear what your spirit is saying so that we can put it into practice and be blessed and be a blessing to others as well. In Jesus' name, amen. Last year, as most of you recall, with a little bit of discomfort, a supposed Christian radio Bible teacher gained notoriety by predicting that the rapture would take place May 21st, 2011, and that the end of the world would then take place five months later on October 21st. Now, I'm reading from the news article now. Followers of Harold Camping claim that around 200 million people, approximately 2.8% of the world's population, would be raptured at that time. So on May 21st, Reuters news agency reported uh, that the curtains were drawn shut in Camping's house there in Alameda, California. No one was answering the door. Camping emerged from his home on May 22nd, saying he was flabbergasted, the rapture did not occur, he was looking for answers, and would say more when he returned to work on May 23rd. On May 23rd, in an appearance before the press, Camping stated he had amended his prophecy. In his revised claim, May 21st was the spiritual judgment day, and the physical rapture would indeed occur on October 21st, simultaneously with the destruction of the world. On October 21st, when that didn't come to pass, Time Magazine's website listed Camping's End Times prediction as um, one of Time's top 10 failed predictions. So interestingly, a failed prediction is one of the Bible's tests laid down to determine whether a prophet is truly a spokesman of God or not. Deuteronomy 18, verse 22, if a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, but his prediction does not happen or come true, you will know that the Lord did not give that message. To me, that is sort of a no-brainer for me. I'm glad it's in the Word, but you know what? Um, Had it been a no-brainer, then people would have realized that when he was wrong the first time and the second time, that perhaps we shouldn't donate $100 million to a ministry with a proven record of predictions that do not come to pass. That would have saved uh, the Christian world a little bit of embarrassment. Um, 
Now, whenever anyone in the Old Testament or New claimed to represent God or to be inspired by the spirit of truth, it was necessary to test these claims because there were many claims. Lots of philosophies out there uh, back in the, the times of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as well. All these spiritual ideas, which one is true? Well, so much of the New Testament is devoted to defending the truth of the gospel by exposing false teachers and their doctrine. By contrasting what's false with the real deal, Christians are warned uh, how to stay on the straight and narrow of what really is the gospel truth. We have a perfect example of this this morning in our text, picking up at verse 1. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist, which you have heard is coming, and even now is already at work in the world. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. They are from the world and therefore they speak from the viewpoint of the world and the world listens to them. We are from God and whoever knows God listens to us. But whoever is not from God doesn't listen to us. This is then how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. Well, let's pause there, reflect on this for our morning uh, text. As I've been teaching, all of 1 John really serves as an offering of litmus tests for genuine salvation. Uh, what's false teaching? What's true teaching? Who are the real Christians and who are simply just posers? Uh, this is what's driving John's five-chapter epistle. Epistle is just a fancy word for letter. Uh, three tests that keep coming at us because John is recycling through three tests over and over again. Chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5. Test 1, test 2, test 3. Test 1, test 2, test 3. These three tests that we've talked about, the love test, the moral test, and the truth test keep coming at us. But every time he mentions them, you've noticed a fresh insight is tagged along each time. So we have the benefit of hearing the point once again, and this should, all should be sounding very familiar to you by now because he's repeating. Um, but every time he repeats, you'll notice there's something new, a new thought, a fresh insight. And so we talked about these three tests. They really serve two purposes. One is to assure Christians that they actually have passed the test, and so they can settle their own uh, hearts before the Lord and, and in their own consciences know, hey, I've got the real thing. He says, you guys passed the test, and, and these three tests are given. Um, and the second purpose they serve is to expose uh, imposters and the lies. 
and so that uh, the false teachers are shown to have failed the test. And so those are the purposes. The love test is simple. We talked about it last week. It was the love test turn. Uh, true Christians are dominated by the supernatural agape love that really sets them apart from the rest of the world. And you can tell who's who by how they love. Because you can't fake God's love. You can fake man's love. Loving those who love you, blah, 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 blah. But when you start loving your enemies and going the extra mile and considering others better than yourselves and not just caring about your own interests, but the interests of others as a lifestyle, then, wow, all men will know that you are my disciples because that kind of love comes from another place. So that's the love test, and we've already talked about that, and we will be talking about it again. <laughs> and, and then there's the moral test. It's just simply an elaboration of this so cut and dried. Jesus saying, anybody who claims to love me will keep my commands. That if you say, I'm born of God, and that God is morally good, but you live a morally bad consistent, habitual lifestyle, then he says you are lying or kidding yourself that you can't possibly be born of a good God and live a consistently bad as Bible-defining bad lifestyle. And so we've talked about that. It is theologically impossible to be saved and going to heaven and continue in a sinful lifestyle. Not sinless perfection, but as a habit of life, it is evidence that you cannot and do not know the God who came to get rid of the sin that is so prevalent and loved in your life. And so this third test, this morning's test, is the truth test. Because he says, you've got to have the right God. You've got to have the right Jesus. The right Jesus differs from the wrong Jesus in that you can use the name, but you can be thinking something else when you use the same terms. And so this was the problem there in the first century in the com Christian communities there in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. These false teachers were using the Bible scrolls, quoting from the Apostle Paul, opening Bible scrolls, and they, they used Jesus' name, they, they used all Christian terms, and the Christian community was very upset. So Paul, Paul and John, and the rest of the New Testament writers, say, let us give you ways that you can spot who is really speaking the truth from God and who is not. So John is going to give us the truth test here. So really, it divides quite nicely. It's, there's two paragraphs. There's two thoughts. So thought number one, you better have the right Jesus. And number two is when you have the right Jesus, your destiny is sure. So number one, the truth uh, about Jesus. And number two, your sure destiny. So uh, the need for testing spiritual teachers because there's more than just one voice out there, as we all know. Now, Jesus told us, Matthew 24, he said, be careful. There are going to be um, many, many people will come as spiritual authorities and say, this is the way to, to, to be right with God. And they'll come in my name. And there'll be false Christ. He said, many. 
So he says, be on guard, be alert. There are ways to know who is who, and so that you can live a wise and discerning lifestyle. He wants us to be wise as serpents and meek as doves, meaning he wants us to be people of discernment, spiritually speaking. And so John is going to elaborate on that uh, this morning. Now, let me paraphrase the opening thoughts for you. Dear friends loved by God, don't just take everything as the gospel truth without first evaluating what you're hearing. Don't just believe anyone who stands behind a pulpit. Test their credibility by scrutinizing the things they're saying because there are a lot of spiritual craziness out there. There's a lot of spiritual crazies in the world. Now, many false prophets, it says in your text, have gone into the world. The first thing I would like to do for us as an American contemporary Western thinking audience that we are is to show you how relevant this warning is to you by defining what the Bible says is a false prophet. Because really, uh, a false prophet, in my mind, I just see this crazed cult leader with a kind of frothing and chanting and kind of crazy look. And that's what I think is a false prophet. So, I mean, when do it, have I ever met a false prophet? Well, listen to this quote. Modern day Christians must broaden their understanding of what a false prophet is and what false teaching looks like. We generally picture false prophets, as I said, um, of cult leaders with glazed over eyes, but in truth, false prophets are speaking through advertising, in commercials we laugh at, through the songs we love to sing, through the movies we watch. False teaching comes up at the coffee hour at work, at the gym, in the classroom, and around the Thanksgiving table with Uncle Albert and his ideas on how to get to heaven. It's not just leaders of obvious cults, but it's a spirit that permeates every facet of an unbelieving world and society. And we, as Christians, truth bearers, must guard against it. And so it doesn't really matter if the false teaching comes through the mouth of your best friend or the mouth of Jim Jones-type personality. Uh, there's a spirit behind the mouthpiece. So it's not so much how it gets to your ear as the spirit that's prompting the words that come to deceive. And so John is saying, heads up about that. You know, it could be a kind-hearted yoga teacher uh, teaching unassuming housewives about TM, Transcendental Meditation, or Hindu philosophies. It could be a very uh, celebrated talk show host, very popular, very rich, with her New Age approach to all paths leading to God. It could be a junior college professor who speaks against Christianity and proposes uh, humanism instead. 
The idea is the spirit, John says, behind that is in the world. It takes on many different forms, but there's one thing about it. It's anti-Jesus, anti-Christ, and it will put Jesus in a different place other than that which he claimed. He claimed to be God in a human body, and so we're going to get to that. Now, sometimes distinguishing uh, between what's from the Lord and what's not is not a difficult task. Now, let's go back to the Old Testament. In 1 Kings 18, it was not a difficult task for Israel to distinguish between the prophets of the Lord, like Elijah, or the pagan sorcerer prophets, like the prophets of Baal. Seriously, I mean, by name only, you could tell, oh, uh, who are you? I'm a prophet of Baal. Oh, okay. Goodbye. You know, pretty easy for the Old Testament Jew to stay clear of them. And if there was any doubt whatsoever, you just had to look at them mutilating themselves to call on the name of their God, gashing themselves with rocks, cutting themselves, chanting, and, and all kinds of weirdness and immorality associated with their worship to know, okay, we, <laughs> we're staying clear of you. Well, uh, the problem, of course, was when two men who both claim to be uh, a prophet of the God of Israel. Now we need a test because they look alike and sound alike and they're claiming the same God. All right, how do I know who's who? Oh, there's a good test. So uh, here's an example, 1 Kings 22. King Ahab, he really, 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 really wants to go to war against Zedekiah. And so he wants to find prophets of the Lord who's going to tell him what he wants to hear. And he had his favorites, and he picked them out. And the text says in 1 Kings 22, there were 400 of them. And they all sang in unison, oh, you the man, go forward in battle. You are going to conquer and divide them. They are toast. Thus saith the Lord, you rock. All right, so they, Ahab was pretty glad about that. But if you remember, there was another king who was joining, King Jehoshaphat, and he said, you know, it just makes me a little uncomfortable that all 400 of them were saying the same thing with the same kind of gooeyness about it. Are, are we sure we're hearing from the Lord? And so they said, well, there is one guy. He's always cantankerous, you know, but... Let's call him in, Micaiah. So in comes Micaiah. And they say, you tell us, Micaiah. We've already heard, but you tell us what the Lord said. And he said, oh, yeah, go ahead. You demand. Oh, go. You're going to have a great time up there. Pow, pow. And then he said, really? Tell me the truth. And he said, OK, I will tell you the truth. Thus saith the Lord, let these soldiers go home. God's not in this. You go, you're going to lose. And the one king turns to the other king and says, what did I tell you? He never says what I want him to say. He always says something different, you know? And so here's what he said. Lest there be any question in the, in the courtroom there, wherever they were in the palace, here's what Micaiah says. He, he pulls out Deuteronomy 8, 13, 18, rather, and he says, if you do go and if you do return in peace, then I'm no prophet of the Lord. Then you can call me a false prophet, lock me up and throw away the key and tell everybody that guy doesn't know what he's talking about. 
if you come back okay. You see, he goes back to the proof in the pudding is that your words don't fall to the ground. Now we're going to find out that sometimes prophets who are false actually say something that comes to pass and has substance. So the Bible will say, oh, let me address that scenario as well. And that's what John is going to do as well. So it's the same today, isn't it? Sometimes it's easy. Sometimes it's not. Now, if you told me that uh, this is my philosophy and my religion that I'm starting. Now, um, all human souls are actually reincarnated aliens from the planet Zemu. And we don't realize that because we have mental blocks. But fortunately for you, in our religion, we have a process called auditing. And we will audit you and remove those mental barriers so that you can get in touch with the memory of Lord Zimu from the planet Zimu. And you will remember, unfortunately, auditing is a lengthy process and it will cost you hundreds of thousands of dollars. Now, for me, I'm like, <laughs> you know what? This week, you know, I'm saving up for something else. I, I'm not going to go for the auditing this time round. But 4.5 million people, according to their website of Scientology, signed up and said, you know what, that sounds good to me. That sounds OK to me. Sometimes it's obvious to some, and sometimes it's a little bit harder when there's a pulpit involved, when there's a cross on the steeple, when there's a collar, when there's a Bible, when there's a thus saith the Lord, when there's a hallelujah and a praise Jesus. Uh, now we need some tests because it's not quite as clear as when you're talking about planet Zemu. That's clear to me. But when you start shaking a Bible and saying, Jesus says, and let me quote the scriptures to you, but I'm hearing something like, wow, that doesn't make sense to me. I need some tests. So John says, oh, oh, here's the test. And it hinges on what they're saying, not so much they're, what they're doing. And so that's the plight. These Gnostic heretics across town were once respected men who taught in Christian circles. But they had seen another light. You remember, you recall, you hear this almost every week. They had trans transcended into a new state of higher consciousness. And uh, they began teaching in Jesus' name that you too could see this same light. But once you saw the light, here's some changes that would happen. You're no longer so limited to this one person, Jesus. God is so much bigger than that one person. Come on. How about this person over here and this religion over there? Let's all get along. Let's see the Christ consciousness in you, in me, and in them, and in Jesus. So this is what the Gnostics were teaching, but they were saying same terms that we use. I claim to know God. I claim to walk in the light. And I claim to honor Jesus. So John says, let's talk about this. Here's the uh, 
here's the big ticket item. They were actually, these new prophets were getting stuff done. They were very popular. They had substance. They had power. They did perhaps some charismatic signs and wonders. And that's why John is saying, okay, there's a spirit involved. They're granted. Uh, things are happening. They have power. They have sway. They're popular. Uh, the Roman and the Greek world had recognized Gnosticism because they had oomph. They had knowledge. They had something going on. That we're not quite sure what power they were manifesting. And now comes into play a scriptural principle from Deuteronomy 13, where Moses, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, by the way, let's say that the prophecy comes to pass. Or let's say that there's a demonstration of substance, yet he tries to lead his hearers astray to serve other gods. Then he is a false prophet. And so the test that John has got you here saying you need the right Jesus and the way you'll know that it's the right Jesus is what they are saying about Jesus. So he says that is, upon, that is what uh, the test hinges upon, what they are saying about Jesus. Here's a paraphrase of that thought. This is how you can recognize God's spirit. Simply ask them, is Jesus Lord? Is he God come down in human form? If they say yes, they're from God. If they say no, they are not from God. That is the spirit of Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and now even at work, springing up everywhere in the world. Now, this is very similar to the Apostle Paul's words and teaching when it came to how uh, Christians could tell what charismatic demonstrations were of the Lord or not. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, he says now about spiritual gifts. I don't want you to be ignorant. He says, no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God can say anything negative about Jesus. No, they can't downgrade him. Nobody's saying, thus saith the Lord, and then say something about Jesus that, that doesn't uh, align up with what we already know about the Lord Jesus. So he's saying, nobody by the Spirit of God could say, Jesus be cursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. In other words, you could tell the two different spirits in this world by what they say about Jesus, who Jesus is. I like what one commentator said about what I just read to you. In other words, no one who claims divine inspiration would ever deny that Jesus is Lord. No man of God in his right mind would dare diminish Jesus' glory by assigning Jesus a position less than God himself, which was Jesus' own claim. So in spiritual matters, he writes, judge things by how they relate to Jesus. Does it glorify him as Lord? Does it foster submission to him and to him alone? Does it promote the true Jesus or a false one? Jesus is either fully God in every way or you have a false teacher and a false gospel, an anti-Jesus spirit. So he's judging, he's helping us judge between the two spirits that are behind all the mouthpieces. He says you really only have two. A Holy Spirit that his mission statement is this, John 16, verse 14, 
The Holy Spirit will come and will testify to you of all my glory. So the, the, any mouthpiece that glorifies Jesus as God in the flesh is from the Holy Spirit, who that is his job to do. But any mouthpiece that seems to be inspired in a way to take away from Jesus what the Bible clearly says about Jesus, that he is the Lord come down through a human womb, incarnated to fill a human body in Jesus Christ, the God slash man, 100% man, 100% God. You mess with that equation, the Bible says, and you don't have the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is all about the glory of God in a body, Jesus Christ. You have the unholy spirit, the spirit of anti-Jesus. And so he says, watch out for that. Now, the idea that Jesus coming down that he always existed and that he was the Lord of heaven and so he came down to fill a human body. That has always been the case from day one in the Bible. Jesus has come in the flesh, meaning that God has come to become a man. It's what the Old Testament predicted. It's what Jesus claimed. It's how Jesus lived. It's what the New Testament teaches. It's the passcode to get into heaven. And finally, it's the destination the destiny, rather, of all human beings to one day acknowledge this little three-word motto. Jesus is Lord. Kurios in the Greek. It means supreme authority. No name above that name. Ruler of all. Maker of heaven and earth. Almighty God. Jesus equals Lord. That is the key. If you don't have that. So what did I say? It's what the Old Testament predicted, nothing new. The Messiah, Savior of the world, will be called Wonderful Counselor, Almighty God, Everlasting Father. So the Jews knew whoever's coming is equal to God, Almighty God. God, Emmanuel, the virgin, will be with a child. He will be called Emmanuel, God with us. So Isaiah 9, Isaiah 7, that's done. Old Testament predicted. Number two, it's what Jesus claimed. He stood there. He said in John 6, hey, I have come down from heaven to save the world, to give myself for the salvation of the world. And the Jews said, how can you say you came down from heaven? We know your father and mother. He's saying, I existed before John chapter 8, verse 58. He said, I'm, I'm before Abraham because I'm the living God who's come down into human form as Jesus, God, the Son. He said, I and the Father are one. John chapter 10, verse 30. After he said that, a reference I quote a lot, the Jews picked up stones because they understood the claim. And Jesus, with a little bit of sarcasm, and he's allowed to be sarcastic because he is Lord, and he says, I just want to know, for which of my good deeds are you about to execute me for? <laughs> and they say, duh, we're not going to kill you because you've done a good deed. We're going to kill you because, quote, you, a mere man, make yourself equal to God. It was Jesus' claim. It was the Old Testament prediction uh, it was how Jesus lived. 
He said, listen, and I quote him, do not believe me unless I can do what the Father does. God the Father, Jehovah, Yahweh. Don't believe me. But if I'm walking on water, I'm casting out thousands of demons. If I'm opening the eyes of a man born blind, if I can tell a paralyzed man, get up and walk, if I can look at a dead man and say, sit up, and he sits up, then you got God in a human body because I'm doing what only the Father could do. So it was what Jesus, how Jesus lived. It was what the New Testament teaches. Here you go, note takers. Jesus is the fullness of God in a human body. Colossians 2.9. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Colossians 1.15. Jesus is the exact representation of God's being. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. By Jesus, all things were created. John chapter 1, verse 3. And Jesus will reign and rule forever and ever. Luke chapter 1, verse 33. This Jesus is Lord, it's the passcode to heaven. He says, if you confess the word homo logeo in the Greek, homo, the same, logeo, word. If you agree with God that Jesus is Lord, you shall be saved. It's a pretty important truth. And he says, so, therefore, you can take those three word words, line it up to what's coming out of the guy's mouth, and if it differs in any way, you just know, I'm out of here, because you are got the spirit of anti-Jesus. This, is, this happens all the time. People want to have a place for Jesus, like uh, he's an angel. He's Michael, the archangel, to the Jehovah's Witness. The spirit behind Charles Taze Russell 150 years ago prompted him to believe that Jesus was a created being. He had a beginning. When Jesus himself said, I am the beginning. And so the Jehovah's Witness, according to Charles Taze Russell's spirit behind him, Antichrist, is to demote Jesus from Jesus is Lord to Jesus is Michael the Archangel, a created being. I'm sorry, you have failed the test. According to this, and according to Calvary Chapel, not according to Ross, you failed the test. Okay, Mormon missionaries. You're big on families. I love the temple. I love the green lawns. I like, I like a lot of stuff. But just, uh, what do you say about Jesus? Tell me about Jesus. Jesus is one God of many gods. Well, what do you say about Isaiah 43.10 when it says, I am the Lord. Apart from me, there is no other. There's no God formed before me. No God formed after me. I am the only Savior. What do you say about that? Well, when there's no answer to that, you understand you have demoted Jesus from the only true God. He claims to be the almighty God who came to earth through a human being. He is God the Son. Apart from him, there is no other God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, one God. You cannot demote him. You cannot include him. 
the woman at the coffee shop who told me uh, about all the enlightened Christ figures in the world. And then I said, well, no, 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 that's just simply Jesus. And she said, your Jesus needs to learn how to take his seat in the circle of all the prophets. And I've told you that many times because it just, it's so absurd. If he is the Lord, if he is God, then he does not take his seat among others. He stands out to be exalted as the one true God. So it's very interesting to me now the jump that John makes. Do you notice this? It stands out to me very loudly. Verses 1 through 3. He says, test the spirits, find the truth, embrace the truth. And then suddenly he says, hang in there. You're going to make it. Greater is he that is in you than the spirit that's in the world. It just seems a little like I don't get the connection. First, you're telling me, hey, test the spirit. Make sure it's uh, of the Lord. Here's the truth test. And, and it's all about Jesus. And then in the next breath, it's like you're going to make it hang in there. What? Why? Well, I'm glad you're asking that, because there's an answer to that. <laughs> Siding with the truth pits you against falsehood, and therein lies the rub. Because when you say those three little words, Jesus is Lord, you are saying by inference, and no one else is. That's the problem. So he's going to say the embrace of God's absolute truth puts you at odds with those who do not think so, John says that there are two groups, those who do right and those who do wrong, and those who do wrong generally do not appreciate those who do right. Now, no worries, John says now in our second point, that you are destined to overcome, even though you've taken the most unpopular version of truth on the planet that gets you into a heap of trouble. You're unpopular, you're outgunned, you're marginalized, because most of the world disagrees with you. So you're standing for truth, you've joined this truth, you're saying everything else, like Jesus said, everything else is false. And so he's saying, so hang in there because you're going to take some heat now, because you're standing up for truth. Uh, Jesus himself in Matthew 10, now that we're in the second point here of destined by God to overcome for standing in that truth, Jesus said, and paraphrased, don't think that finding the truth is going to be a peaceful, easy thing. Belief in me polarizes people, even in your own families. A stand for me and the truth will create hostility between those who know me and love the truth and those who don't even at your own kitchen table. He says, mom's going to love me and love the truth and want to tell everybody the truth, the truth, the truth. And the daughter-in-law will be rolling her eyes and excusing herself from the table or vice versa. And Jesus says, at your Thanksgiving table, somebody's going to have a Bible and say a prayer and it's going to be in Jesus' name. And somebody's going to say, what do you have to say in Jesus' name for? Why can't you be tolerant and just say amen? And so Jesus is saying, it's going to cause you a problem to stand with me on the side of truth. What did he tell Pontius Pilate? I love what he said to Pontius Pilate. Pilate says, oh, so you are a king. Hmm. He says, tell me about it. 
Jesus says, you're right in saying that I'm a king. For this reason, I was born. And for this, here it is, I came into the world. I existed before, I was Lord of heaven, and I came into the world for this reason. And then he says, to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. All right, so I heard something. I read something. I agree, I heard. I belong to God now. And now I'm on the side of truth. But it puts me on the other side of everybody else who says, oh, there's lots of ways. There's this and that. And therein lies the problem. That's why John's going to say, don't worry. God is in you. The truth is in you. And you overcome in the end, even though it doesn't feel like that all the time. Now, this week, I had a, what was a pleasant conversation, and I think it overall was. I had a coffee shop with somebody as I was sharing this gospel. And it was pleasant until I got to the hard part, where Jesus is Lord, that part. Where, which means nobody else is, because that's his job. Title filled, done. No, 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 no vacancies. You see what I'm saying? He said to me, it's the height of human hubris and arrogance for you Christians to think that you have the market on truth. Uh, Christianity is only you know, one way of many ways, everyone else is wrong, according to you. And if I don't believe the way you believe, then I'm going to miss eternal life. And only you have the corner market on truth. And everybody else in the whole world, outside of Jesus, is wrong. He said, why do you Christians have to pick a fight with the world? And I said, first of all, number one, this isn't my truth. I didn't come up with it. Christians aren't telling you what they think. They're telling you what you could read today in a book called the Bible. We choose to believe that. We are very happy, he interrupts, and says, we're very happy for you. You found the light. You found your Lord. Now live and let live. Make room, man. You're supposed to be a religion of peace. And instead, you're like crossing your arms and saying, no, no, there's only one little door to get into heaven. So I said to him, can I read something to you that will help you understand why we are so obsessive? <laughs> Matthew 28. I think we should blame God when it is God's fault. And this is clearly, <laughs> this is clearly God's fault. <laughs> I mean that in a reverent sort of way. Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Here's what the Lord, my Lord, that you are glad that I have, said to us. He said, all authority on he in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, I, who have all authority in heaven and earth, I command you who follow me to go into all the world. That would include, include Sebastopol, Occidental, and Freestone, and every other coffee shop that I've been to and had some issues with. <laughs> now listen, go into all the world, and what does he want us to say? He wants us to say, teach them to obey 
everything I have said. I said, I looked at him and I said, we're stuck. We are stuck. That is our Lord. We have a command. He's saying, go out and say, you know what he said? He said, everybody who came before me are thieves and robbers. Not because he hates people, but because he loves them. If they can't give you eternal life, he wants you to know they're bad boys. They're promising you something they can't deliver. So out of love, I'm saying, there's only one way. I became a man. I am God of the universe. I bled in your place. I was sinless. I didn't deserve what they did to me. I let them nail me to a piece of wood that I, as Lord, created. Therefore, I have the authority and the right to say there's a door. That door, one door, is me. If anybody hear my voice and walk through that door, you will come into eternal life. Period. Just by believing and coming and trusting in the Lord of glory. I said, what do you want us to do? I don't understand what you expect. And John says, oh, let me tell you what happened. They went out and said, let's change this gospel to fit in a little bit better. So John says, listen, they're of the world. So they preach what the world wants to hear, and they're received of the world. So they revise the gospel to take away all the offenses. And so they said, hey, listen, you know, Jesus is good. He's a good rabbi. He's a moral teacher. He's got the Christ consciousness, but so do others. Ah, and so now the church is growing because, oh, we have a wider, more tolerant, more gentle and loving approach to life. And, and by the way, these bodies, oh, they're going to die. They're temporary. What, what counts is your eternal soul, right? And so whatever you do in your physical body, it doesn't count. So, yeah, you want to go out and live it up? It's all right. So they found a way to, in Jesus' name, limit who Jesus was, dethrone him from Lord, and then also allow you to have your cake and eat it too and have your sinful lifestyle. So John says, is it any wonder the world listens to them? Hello, that's exactly what the world wants to hear, that I can be spiritual, but I don't have to be holy, that I can know God, but I don't have to cause problems at the table because I have to pray only in Jesus' name. We fixed everything. We've got a form of spirituality. We can talk the talk. We can be kind and do charity work. And all in the name of love. Hallelujah. Praise Jesus. Quote from the breakfast. I, the other guy, I in no way diminish an ounce of majesty from your Jesus. And the steam was coming out of my ears. I had to plug it up like this. I said, excuse me? You just said that he's not God. He isn't who he claims to be. That he's lying. That there are other gods in other ways and other paths. And you haven't taken an ounce of majesty from the Lord Jesus? He said, not an ounce. I don't understand. He says, I revere him as he is. 
not necessarily as you think he is. Okay. And so we ordered a scone and everything was fine. <laughs> you cannot mess with Jesus is Lord. Line it up. And, and there are many other tests as well. But the Jesus is Lord, when somebody's bowed to Jesus as God, everything else, including reverence for the infallible word of God itself, uh, seems to fall into place. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great love. And Father, none of us think we're better than anybody else at all. We have just as many problems, and we are just as sinful as anybody else in this world. But Father, you have opened our eyes to the truth, the truth of our sinfulness, but the truth also that there's a Savior and a way out of sin. And you have commanded us to let our light shine before men. And Father, not, not in an arrogant, hypocritical way, not in a condescending way. Your word teaches us how to do it with humility, gentleness, by modeling a life of love and submission, with all respect, without arguing. The kind heart to say, Father, we've found truth, or rather the truth has found us, and we want to share that with others. So help us, Father. The man who had the conversation with me, this entire congregation, lifts him to you. Father, not because we're right, or because we're smart, but because you are true, you are the living God, and you've provided a way for us to be saved. May you help him to come to the knowledge of the truth and repent of his sins and receive Christ as Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.